Section 17 of The Black Poodle and Other Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Martin. The Curse of the Catafalques, Part 4. What a night I passed as I tossed sleeplessly from side to side under the canopy of my old-fashioned bedstead, torturing my fevered brain with vain speculations as to the fate the morrow was to bring me. I felt myself perfectly helpless. I saw no way out of it. They seemed bent upon offering me up as a sacrifice to this private molech of theirs. The baronet was quite capable of keeping me locked up all the next day and pushing me into the grey chamber to take my chance when the hour came. If I had only some idea what the curse was like to look at, I thought I might not feel quite so afraid of it. The vague and impalpable awfulness of the thing was intolerable, and the very thought of it caused me to fling myself about in an ecstasy of horror. By degrees, however, as daybreak came near, I grew calmer, until at length I arrived at a decision. It seemed evident to me that, as I could not avoid my fate, the wisest course was to go forth to meet it with as good a grace as possible. Then, should I by some fortunate accident come well out of it, my fortune was insured. But if I went on repudiating my assumed self to the very last, I should surely arouse a suspicion which the most signal route of the curse would not serve to dispel. And after all, as I began to think, the whole thing had probably been much exaggerated. If I could only keep my head and exercise all my powers of cool impudence, I might contrive to hoodwink this formidable relic of medieval days, which must have fallen rather behind the age by this time. It must even turn out to be, although I was hardly sanguine as to this, as big a humbug as I myself was, and we should meet with confidential winks like the two augurs. But at all events I resolved to see this mysterious affair out and trust to my customary good luck to bring me safely through, and so, having found the door unlocked, I came down to breakfast something like my usual self and set myself to remove the unfavorable impression I had made on the previous night. They did it from consideration for me, but still it was mistaken kindness for them all to leave me entirely to my own thoughts during the whole of the day, for I was driven to mope alone about the gloom-laden building until by dinner-time I was very low indeed from nervous depression. We dined in almost unbroken silence. Now and then, as Sir Paul saw my hand approaching a decanter, he would open his lips to observe that I should need the clearest head and the firmest nerve ere long, and warned me solemnly against the brown sherry. From time to time, too, Chlorine and her mother stole apprehensive glances at me, and sighed heavily between every course. I never remember eating a dinner with so little enjoyment. The meal came to an end at last. The ladies rose, and Sir Paul and I were left to brood over the dessert. I fancy both of us felt a delicacy in starting a conversation, and before I could hit upon a safe remark, Lady Catafalque and her daughter returned, dressed, to my unspeakable horror, in readiness to go out. Worse than that even, Sir Paul apparently intended to accompany them, for he rose at their entrance. 
it is now time for us to bid you a solemn farewell augustus he said in his hollow old voice you have three hours before you yet and if you are wise you will spend them in earnest self-preparation at midnight punctually for you must not dare to delay you will go to the grey chamber the way thither you know and you will find the curse prepared for you good-bye then brave and devoted boy stand firm and no harm can befall you you are going away all of you i cried they were not what you might call a gay family to sit up with but even their society was better than my own upon these dread occasions he explained it is absolutely forbidden for any human being but one to remain in the house all the servants have already left and we are about to take our departure for a private hotel near the strand we shall just have time if we start at once to inspect the Soane Museum on our way thither, which will serve as some distraction for the terrible anxiety we shall be feeling. At this, I believe, I positively howled with terror. All oh, my old panic came back with a rush. Don't leave me all alone with it, I cried. I shall go mad if you do. Sir Paul simply turned on his heel in silent contempt, and his wife followed him. But Chlorine remained behind for one instant, and somehow as she gazed at me with a yearning pity in her sad eyes. I thought I had never seen her looking so pretty before. Augustus, she said, get up. I suppose I must have been on the floor somewhere. Be a man. Show us we were not mistaken in you. You know I would spare you this if I could. But we are powerless. Oh, be brave, or I shall lose you forever. Her appeal did seem to put a little courage into me. I staggered up and kissed her slender hand and vowed sincerely to be worthy of her. And then she too passed out, and the heavy hall door slammed behind the three, and the rusty old gate screeched like a banshee as it swung back and closed with a clang. I heard the carriage wheels grind the slush, and the next moment I knew I was shut up on Christmas Eve in that somber mansion with the curse of the catafalques as my sole companion. I don't think the generous ardor with which Chlorine's last words had inspired me lasted very long, for I caught myself shivering before the clock struck nine, and drawing up a chimney-leather and armchair close to the fire. I piled on the logs and tried to get rid of a certain horrible sensation of internal vacancy which was beginning to afflict me. I tried to look my situation fairly in the face. Whatever reason and common sense had to say about it, there seemed no possible doubt that something of a supernatural order was shut up in that great chamber down the corridor, and also that, if I meant to win Chlorine, I must go up and have some kind of an interview with it. Once more I wished I had some definite idea to go upon. What description of being should I find this curse? Would it be aggressively ugly like the boogie of my infancy, or should I see a lank and unsubstantial shape draped in clinging black, with nothing visible beneath it but a pair of burning hollow eyes and one long pale bony hand? Really, I could not decide which would be the more trying of the two. By and by I began to recollect unwillingly all the frightful stories I had ever read. One in particular came back to me. The adventure of a foreign marshal who, after much industry, succeeded in invoking an evil spirit which came bouncing into the room shaped like a gigantic ball with, I think, a hideous face in the middle of it, 
and would not be got rid of until the horrified marshal had spent hours in hard praying and persistent exorcism. What should I do if the curse was a globular one and came rolling all around the room after me? Then there was another appalling tale I had read in some magazine, a tale of a secret chamber, too, and in some respects a very similar case to my own, for there the heir of some great house had to go in and meet a mysterious aged person with strange eyes and an evil smile, who kept attempting to shake hands with him. Nothing should induce me to shake hands with the curse of the catafalques, however apparently friendly I might find it. But it was not very likely to be friendly, for it was one of those mystic powers of darkness which know nearly everything. It would detect me as an impostor directly, and what would become of me? I declare I almost resolved to confess all and sob out my deceit upon its bosom, and the only thing which made me pause was the reflection that probably the curse did not possess a bosom. By this time I had worked myself up to such a pitch of terror that I found it absolutely necessary to brace my nerves, and I did brace them. I emptied all the three decanters, but, as Sir Paul Seller was none of the best, the only result was that, while my courage and daring were not perceptibly heightened, I was conscious of feeling exceedingly unwell. Tobacco, no doubt, would have calmed and soothed me, but I did not dare to smoke, for the curse, being old-fashioned, might object to the smell of it, and I was anxious to avoid exciting its prejudices unnecessarily. And so I simply sat in my chair and shook. Every now and then I heard steps on the frosty path outside, sometimes a rapid tread, as of some happy person bound to scenes of Christmas revelry, and little dreaming of the miserable wretch he was passing, sometimes the slow creaking tempo of the Fulham policeman on his beat. What if I called him in and gave the curse into custody, either for putting me in bodily fear, as it was undeniably doing, or for being found on the premises under suspicious circumstances? There was a certain audacity about this means of cutting the knot that fascinated me at first, but still I did not venture to adopt it, thinking it most probable that the stolid constable would decline to interfere as soon as he knew the facts, and even if he did it would certainly annoy Sir Paul extremely to hear of his family curse spending its Christmas in a police cell, and I felt instinctively that he would consider it a piece of unpardonable bad taste on my part. So one hour passed. A few minutes after ten I heard more footsteps and voices in low consultation as if a band of men had collected outside the railings. Could there be any indication without of the horrors these walls contained? But no, the gaunt house-front kept its secret too well. They were merely the waits. They saluted me with the old carol, God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, which should have encouraged me, but it didn't and they followed that up by a wheezy but pathetic rendering of the mistletoe bow. For a time I did not object to them. While they were scraping and blowing outside, I felt less abandoned and cut off from human help, and then they might arouse softer sentiments in the curse upstairs by their unseasonable strains. These things do happen at Christmas sometimes, but their performance was really so infernally bad that it was calculated rather to irritate than sublime any evil spirit, and very soon I rushed to the window and beckoned to them furiously to go away. Unhappily they thought I was inviting them indoors for refreshment, and came round to the gate, when they knocked and rang incessantly for a quarter of an hour. 
this must have stirred the curse up quite enough but when they had gone there came a man with a barrel organ which was suffering from some complicated internal disorder causing it to play its whole repertoire at once in maddening discords even the grinder himself seemed dimly aware that his instrument was not doing itself justice for he would stop occasionally as if to ponder or examine it but he was evidently a sanguine person and had hopes of bringing it round by a little perseverance so as parsons green was well suited by its quiet for this mode of treatment he remained there till he must have reduced the curse to a rampant and rabid condition he went at last and then the silence that followed began to my excited fancy for i certainly saw nothing to be invaded by strange sounds that echoed about the old house i heard sharp reports from the furniture sighing moans in the draughty passages doors opening and shutting and worse still stealthy padding footsteps both above and in the ghostly hall outside i sat there in an ice-cold perspiration until my nerves required more bracing to effect which i had recourse to the spirit case and after a short time my fears began to melt away rapidly what a ridiculous bugbear i was making of this thing after all was i not too hasty in setting it down as ugly and hostile before i had seen it how did i know it was anything which deserved my horror here a gush of sentiment came over me at the thought that it might be that for long centuries the poor curse had been cruelly misunderstood that it might be a blessing in disguise i was so affected by the thought that i resolved to go up at once and wish it a merry christmas through the keyhole just to show that i came in no unfriendly spirit but would not that seem as if i was afraid of it i scorned the idea of being afraid why for two straws i would go straight in and pull its nose for it if it had a nose i went out with this object not very steadily but before i had reached the top of the dim and misty staircase i had given up all ideas of defiance and merely intended to go as far as the corridor by way of a preliminary canter the coffin lid door stood open and i looked apprehensively down the corridor the grim metal fittings on the massive door of this grey chamber were gleaming with a mysterious pale light something between the phenomena obtained by electricity and the peculiar phosphorescence observable in a decayed shellfish under the door i saw the reflection of a sullen red glow and within i could hear sounds like the roar of a mighty wind above which peals of fiendish mirth rang out at intervals and were followed by a hideous dull clanking it seemed only too evident that the curse was getting up the steam for our interview. I did not stay there long, because I was afraid that it might dart out suddenly and catch me eavesdropping, which would be a hopelessly bad beginning. I got back to the dining-room somehow. The fire had taken advantage of my short absence to go out, and I was surprised to find by the light of the fast dimming lamp that it was quarter to twelve already only fifteen more fleeting minutes and then unless i gave up chlorine and her fortune for ever i must go up and knock at that awful door and enter the presence of the frightful mystic thing that was roaring and laughing and clanking on the other side stupidly i sat and stared at the clock in five minutes now i should be beginning my desperate duel with one of the powers of darkness a thought which gave me sickening qualms I was clinging to the thought that I had still two precious minutes left, 
perhaps my last moments of safety and sanity, when the lamp expired with a gurgling sob and left me in the dark. I was afraid of sitting there all alone any longer, and besides, if I lingered, the curse might come down and fetch me. The horror of this idea made me resolve to go up at once, especially as scrupulous punctuality might propitiate it. Groping my way to the door, I reached the hall and stood there, swaying under the old stained-glass lantern, and then I made a terrible discovery. I was not in a condition to transact any business. I had disregarded Sir Paul's well-meant warning at dinner. I was not my own master. I was lost. The clock in the adjoining room told twelve, and from without the distant steeples proclaimed in faint peals and chimes that it was Christmas morn. My hour had come. Why did I not mount those stairs? I tried again and again and fell down every time, and at each attempt I knew the curse would be getting more and more impatient. I was quite five minutes late, and yet with all my eagerness to be punctual, I could not get up that staircase. It was a horrible situation, but it was not at its worst even then, for I heard a jarring sound above, as if heavy rusty bolts were being withdrawn. The curse was coming down to see what had become of me. I should have to confess my inability to go upstairs without assistance, and so place myself wholly at its mercy. I made one more desperate effort, and then, and then, upon my word, I don't know how it was exactly, but as I looked wildly about, I caught sight of my hat on the hat-rack below, and the thoughts it roused in me proved too strong for resistance. Perhaps it was weak of me, but I venture to think that very few men in my position would have behaved any better. I renounced my ingenious and elaborate scheme for ever. The door, fortunately for me, was neither locked nor bolted, and the next moment I was running for my life along the road to Chelsea, urged on by the fancy that the curse was in hot pursuit. For weeks after that I lay in hiding, starting at every sound, so fearful was I that the outraged curse might track me down at last. All my worldly possessions were at Parsons Green, and I could not bring myself to write or call for them, nor indeed have I seen any of the catafalques since that awful Christmas Eve. I wish to have nothing more to do with them, for I feel naturally that they took a cruel advantage of my youth and inexperience, and I shall always resent the deception and constraint to which I so nearly fell a victim. But it occurs to me that those who may have followed my strange story with any curiosity and interest might be slightly disappointed at its conclusion, which I cannot deny is a lame and unsatisfactory one. They expected, no doubt, to be told what the curse's personal appearance is, and how it comports itself in that ghastly grey chamber, what it said to me, and what I said to it, and what happened after that. This information, as will be easily understood, I cannot pretend to give, and, for myself, I have long ceased to feel the slightest curiosity on any of these points. But for the benefit of such as are less indifferent, I may suggest that almost any eligible bachelor would easily obtain the opportunities I failed to enjoy by simply calling at the old mansion at Parsons Green and presenting himself to the baronet as a suitor for his daughter's hand. I shall be most happy to allow my name to be used as a reference. End of section four. Reading by Joyce Martin.